MSW Media. Hey, Asha. Now that the former head of the FBI Counterintelligence Division in New York has been indicted for working with a Russian oligarch, does that mean the FBI is compromised? Hmm, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And I'm Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. So, Asha, you're going to have to help me understand this recent indictment of Mr. McGonagall. Um, Is that how you say his name? I've been saying McGonagall. McGonagall. Okay, so what 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 what's going on here? Help us understand. This is a complicated indictment. This is not this one's not straightforward at all. Yes. So there's actually two indictments. One in New York. There was another one filed the same day in DC. Whoa. Yes. I only read the New York one. Yeah, okay, there's a, there's a whole other it. one, which is I think even the DC one is even sketchier than the the New York one. So the New York one um involves the former head of the counterintelligence division of the New York field office of the FBI, the uh, special agent in charge. So the New York field office um, has an assistant director in charge of the entire office, but because it is the largest field office, um, and a couple of other large fields office offices have an ADIC, and then underneath them they have special agents in charge of the different divisions, um, as compared to some other field offices that just have a special agent in charge. But anyway, so um, essentially, this you know one of the second highest in command of the New York field office, and then overseeing all of counterintelligence, which basically monitors foreign intelligence activity. Uh, so the New York indictment alleges that. This person, Charlie McGonagall, um, had basically been involved with uh, another individual to help lift sanctions against Oleg Deripaska. Oleg Deripaska is a Russian oligarch, very close with Vladimir Putin, who had been sanctioned by the Treasury Department. He had actually been sanctioned well before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine last year. Um, and essentially there is a law called the International Economic, wait, it's IEEPA, and now I'm like forgetting exactly what it stands for. It's complicated. It's complicated. Um, something Economic Powers Act. I'm going to look it up. Um, IEPA is what, what it's referred to, uh, which allows the president to basically impose sanctions to bar the people from receiving um, or giving money, you know, to certain business entities or individuals. And Oleg Deripaska is on this list. And the long and short of it is that Charlie McGonagall was receiving payments um, through a shell company uh, that he sort of 
bamboozled a friend in New Jersey to, to you know, receive these uh, payments from a Russian bank um, and was receiving payments in violation of uh, treasury sanctions. So that's that one. Well, and he was hiding it, right? It was a little shady. Like he's calling him the big guy and like using kind of coded language just to refer to him. Right. And the key is that, um, you know, the indictment makes it a point to highlight that as the former head of the counterintelligence division of the FBI, this person was very up to speed on the fact that sanctions were in place, how they worked, right. that this was all prohibited. I mean, he's not just like, you know, a random Joe that ended up working for Deripaska and had no idea that he can't right. be paid by him or something like that. So there was a lot of um, deliberate concealment of uh, these payments and, and the receipt of these payments. It's really an important point. I mean, I think sometimes your status and your knowledge can make it easier for uh, the government to indict you, right? And it, it can go towards the actual intent necessary to file criminal charges. I think that's an important point that we've seen in other cases. And people often ask us why you can't charge certain people. This is in a kind of a, the counterexample to that, right? That's right. I mean, there he clearly knew. And I mean, I would add there's another layer here, which is that Oleg Deripaska is also connected to Russian intelligence. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, in the Russian state, there's really not the kind of divisions that we have between the president and intelligence agencies and business people. I mean, all of these different sectors of Russia essentially funnel up to Vladimir Putin, right? They call it the power mm -hmm. vertical. And so all these oligarchs are essentially allowed to keep and stash their money and do what they want to do as long as they're helping uh, Putin with his dirty work and they're working closely with intelligence agencies. Um, Deripaska may sound familiar to people because he was intimately connected with Paul Manafort. Paul Manafort, prior to going to work for the Trump campaign for free, mm -hmm. I believe owed Deripaska something along the lines of, I don't know, $10 million or something like that. Um, yeah. So he owed this Russian oligarch a lot of money, ended up mm -hmm. working for the Trump campaign for free. Um, and you know, there, like that was one of the connections that were kind of problematic, um, and, you know, mm -hmm. were leading to, uh, this idea that, that Paul Manafort through Konstantin Klimnik was kind of passing information about the campaign back to the Kremlin. Mm -hmm. Deripaska also surfaced, uh, because in, in another situation involving Mitch McConnell, because Deripaska, um, is the I, I think the owner or, you know, he, he basically is behind a big Russian aluminum company called Rusal. And Rusal mm -hmm. was, I think, trying to get an aluminum plant um, or backing an aluminum plant of some kind in Kentucky. And so I think this was in 2019 that Mitch McConnell and... Paul Rand were trying to get treasury sanctions lifted um, on Russell, the company, so that 
this investment could be made. So it's very mm-hmm. sketchy. There's stuff all over the place. And Mnuchin, uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin was involved um, with that whole scheme. So he's surfaced in a lot of different areas, um, which makes it, again, even more damning that the person who was probably the most aware of all of these very problematic aspects of malign influence in various aspects of, you know, American society and should have been protecting us from it was actually getting into bed with this person. Now, some of it happened right before he retired. Most of this happened, the the Deripaska stuff at least, happened after he retired. Um, But obviously, Mm -hmm. even after he retired, it was still illegal for him to be knowingly violating U.S. sanctions against a Russian oligarch. Well, let's talk about this DC indictment. I'm taking a look at this now. This also looks very problematic. And I will say it takes a lot of effort to get indicted by the feds in two different jurisdictions <laughs> at the same time. So um, pretty uh, pretty uh, impressive effort here uh, by Mr. McGonagall. And I had a question about mm-hmm. that. Um, are they required to do that because the crimes were taking place in these different jurisdictions? Is there no way to consolidate that? No, there isn't because, for example, the false statement uh, counts here in the District of D.C. Indictment occurred in the District of D.C. So you can't indict those anywhere else. So a lot of times, that's why I said it takes some effort. A lot of times what would happen is, you know, let's just say you have a standard case. You know, uh, you know somebody commits a million-dollar fraud in Chicago or somebody is trafficking drugs in New York you know, and and maybe they they also traffic drugs in three other cities. You'll just charge them in New York, and you'll just you'll just put the rest of it in front of the judge at sentencing, and just kind of wrap it all up, and you know, do do one indictment. You kind of accomplished what you're supposed to accomplish, which is to get the guy in prison, and you know, the judge will take into account all this other stuff. It, it really you have to be someone special to get indicted in a bunch of different places at once. I mean, maybe you're Chapo Guzman, maybe you're R. Kelly, uh, or maybe you're this guy. Uh, so you know, or 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 whoever, Michael Avenatti. You have to crime in multiple areas, and the government has to decide that you're somebody that they really want to make sure they're they're putting the squeeze on because he's going to have to have two trials. He's going to have to, you know, deal with both cases. Get they got two two whacks at him. If even if he beats one set of charges, he has the other one. Like that's not a good situation for him. By the way, just to close an open loop from the the other indictment, I just looked up. It's International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Um, I forgot had forgotten what the first E stands for. Um, IEPA is what it's known as. Um, the second indictment, I think, is even sketchier than the first, because a lot of it involves things that were taking place while McGonagall was still working for the FBI and in his role as um, the SAC, the counterintelligence division. And I mean, it's it's a fairly complicated set of facts, but basically he's in touch with foreign nationals. He's meeting with people like the president of Albania. He's initiating investigations uh, in New York against political opponents of the president of Albania while taking, um, I think, a total of $225,000 in payments um, to kind of do the work for, do work that benefited uh, politically or financially these foreign nationals um, and, gov- you know, government officials, people connected with intelligence 
without disclosing it. So in the FBI, you have um, you have to disclose any contact you have with foreign nationals. You have to disclose any assets you have over a certain amount of money. You have to disclose your liabilities because you hold a security clearance. And the purpose of these disclosures is to identify whether you might have any vulnerabilities, um, you know, knowing that, you know, you have been in touch with certain foreign officials, et cetera, um, it kind of let, you know, makes it transparent. And so there's no way that these people can kind of hold that over you. Um, if, you know, if you, if you try to keep it secret, for example. Um, and so really it's trying to ensure that there is transparency. It's part of the, these disclosures began as part of a, a law called the ethics and government act of 1978. Um, and he was just lying on these forms left and right. Um, he was basically flying back and forth to Albania, to Austria. I mean, meeting with a head of state of another country and just not um, disclosing this and then also accepting payments. And I think most problematically, uh, funneling information, initiating investigations. And in fact, some of these people, or at least one of these people that he was in constant contact with was an informant for one of these investigations that he opened. And he did not disclose that he had this outside personal relationship with this person. I mean, it's very, very sketchy and bad. Yeah, I have to say, you know, you said fail to disclose, but, you know, it depends on the way you look at it. I mean, the government spin on it, and I think it's accurate, is, well, he was actually making false statements, yes. right? Because he was saying, oh, I'm meeting nobody. <laughs> like, right? I'm not I'm not meeting anyone, or I'm right, and, and this sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it is really, really problematic. It's corrupt. Um, it just, I think it raises the question of how this, how this even happened, how somebody that corrupt could be in that, in that position of authority. I'm sure that's what a lot of our listeners are thinking. That, that is the big question. And just quickly to highlight, you know, when you said you say failure to disclose, I say false statements. I think that's again, one of these national security versus criminal, um, lenses, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's both all of the above, um, right. the, the false statement is the criminal violation. The failure to disclose Correct. is what creates the national security threat. And both of these are in play here. So he is, the charges are for false statements. The failure to disclose really goes to the fact that he was compromised, um, to, mm -hmm. to, to use your initial word in your question. Um, the question of how this could happen. I mean, here's the thing after, Robert Hansen was arrested in 2001, I believe, um, which was, you know, probably the largest intelligence breach um, in, in our history. He had been spying for the Soviet Union and then Russia for, I think, over a span on and off of 20 years. Um, the FBI instituted periodic polygraph tests. So people at least on the national security side, I'm not sure if everyone does, but definitely on the national security side, had to have to undergo a polygraph every five years. And it's specifically to identify people who might be compromised. So I think that in McGonagall's case, um, I believe that it started a few years before he retired, at least the the... the the things mm -hmm. in the second indictment. 
Um, and so it might have been like he might have just skated by after a po- like had a polygraph that came out clean and then was doing this, though. You know, I have to tell you that I don't think people just sort of become corrupt over. They don't just wake up one day and they're like, I'm going to start taking money from, you know, foreign intelligence officers like you're I think you're hardwired that way or you're not right. Like you have a price or you're not. So I I have to wonder what was going on before that. And I also have to wonder why, you know, the polygraph or other mechanisms designed to screen people like this um, and and identify them didn't do that earlier. Right. I mean, there are crimes, I think, that are that have that come arise in certain situations. Right. I used to investigate, um, you know, real estate uh, moogles, uh, you know, right after the um, real estate crash in, two, in 2008. A lot of them were very uh, tight on cash and they did uh, criminal things, uh, I think that they wouldn't have done if their businesses were doing well, but they just got desperate and things like that. You know, or there's, I remember, you know, and indicting a guy who was so addicted to co- to crack cocaine that he robbed a lot of banks in a very violent way and terrorized a lot of people. You know, I, I do think there are it can be reasons for it, but this sort of thing is just how do you explain it, right? And with this, the other thing I think comes to mind with somebody this corrupt uh, who didn't need to be, right? He's not like, you know, in desperate straits. I I can't imagine, you know, you have this big time FBI guy, but also how foolish he was to do it this way. That's the other thing that comes to mind, right? Like you'd think he would be, he's a super secret spy guy. Isn't that all you counterintelligence people? Aren't you like super, super savvy? Thank you. That. That's the other thing. When I was reading the indictment, I didn't understand, like, how did he think he was not going to be caught? That was really strange. Like, even when he's traveling to Albania with this, you know, foreign national that he was not supposed to have contact with, they're flying together. I mean, he flies there. He actually does disclose... um, like he disclosed something like he he disclosed unofficial travel to Albania but that's going to raise the question of well who paid for you to stay there and there's no you know like in other words it, he wasn't actually like being super super squirrel secret you know what i'm saying like it was very strange and right that's what was so weird about it um it's like i was reading it and wondering like your friend is going to get this transaction from a Russian bank of several tens of thousands of dollars. Like that's going to get flagged. Like someone's going to look at that and then wonder why. I don't even know what that company was. Like what this construction company in, in New Jersey is getting, you know, money from a, a a Russian source. Like I, it was very strange to me that he thought that this was somehow not going to be detected. Right. Whereas like, you know, you mentioned the prior case and that was actually it was like CIA operative who was, you know, working for the Russians and the Soviets for many years. That guy FBI. was like super, He was FBI. Or he was FBI. Oh, geez. Mm-hmm. But he was like super clever. Like I remember reading all about yeah. it and I'm like, that guy was like doing all this super secret stuff to like avoid being caught. Right. I mean, like crazy, like living a double life, basically. Um, this guy, nothing like that. So. He really looks like he's in a very difficult spot. You know, I mean, he 
you know, his his lawyer put out a statement that was pretty it's it was pretty telling. It was like, well, we're looking forward to seeing the evidence that they have and evaluating our case or, you know, something like that. It's like, okay. Um, you know, uh, it really is going to be hard. It's very hard to beat, beat these, beat both of these at the same time. A jury's not going to like this guy and is going to be very skeptical. Well, and I, I imagine that, um, you know, the government's going to throw the book at him because as someone who was in a position of trust and especially a position where he was expected to protect national security in the, the largest field office that, is charged with these things, I can imagine that no one's going to have sympathy for him, not the prosecutors, not the jury, not the judge. Um, and so I frankly hope that he spends a lot of time in jail. I'll just add that, you know, the Republicans are jumping on this and saying, because as the head of the uh, New York counterintelligence division, McGonagall was actually involved in a number of cases. And I think he was actually quite aggressive in certain counterintelligence investigations, but he did have a hand in the investigation um, into contacts between the Trump campaign and Russia. Mm. And, you know, I, I just saw a tweet from Dinesh D'Souza um, before I, I came on this, like, you know, the person who's been found caught, you know, with uh, Russian spies was, you know, running the investigation into Russian spies. And I was like, I don't think this really helps your case because it sort of <laughs> proves the point that Russia has really been able to infiltrate um, mm. our institutions, you know, and it's really strange. Like, I don't even I, I'm not I'm not fully understanding the logic of what, what they, where they're trying to go. I think it's just another kind of word salad word salad mishmash i mean i think it's like well the they want to prove you know trump told uh trump, trump told them the fbi is corrupt and here you go here's mm -hmm. your proof you know it's, here's your deep state proof that they're corrupt and they're maybe they were trying to pin pin it on trump because they were the ones who were colluding with russia you know that sort of thing it's just yeah. it's a very easy thing to parody word salad with a with russian dressing wow yeah indeed <laughs> Wow. Well, I will. I will just flag as well. I mean, you know, you um, you did a really great piece in your Substack on the Hunter Biden um, misinformation campaign, whatever. Um, and I think this is going to ultimately be something similar, maybe on a smaller scale. Hi, I'm Moji Alawodeal from the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod, the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post-row anti-abortion hellscape. Each week with co-hosts Marie Khan and Liz Winstead, we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground. The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. So, Renato, now let's turn the tables um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, get to the criminal stuff. And it looks like the DA in Santa Fe, New Mexico, is going to be charging Alec Baldwin and another person uh, who worked on the film Rust of involuntary manslaughter for the discharge of a prop 
weapon on set, which discharged a real bullet that hit one of the production crew, killed her, and injured someone else. And I know you're, you've been following that case, and maybe you can unpack it for us. I think it's two charges of involuntary manslaughter is what the charges are going to be. Yeah, and that is really complicated, as I learned. I spent a lot of time studying New Mexico law um, uh, this past week, uh, and it's because it's, it's very, very confusing. Um, so involuntary manslaughter, um, you know, tr- traditionally in New Mexico law, I read a lot of case law there, required um, cr- sort of a criminal – uh, recklessness that you actually had to have kind of a wanton disregard for human life, uh, sort of an you know you you essentially were you know not you know it was it was more than just negligence. So negligence is where like you you know you're acting in a way that a prudent person wouldn't act. You know maybe you're texting while you drive or something like that. Um, you know where whereas the sort of wanton disregard for human life is you know the the example used in New Mexico courts is like you're driving the wrong way on, in the road like you're driving driving the wrong lane like against traffic up a hill so you can't see who's on the other side so you just don't care um like if you hit somebody and kill them um so that's that's usually what's required but the New Me- the uh, New Mexico Court of Appeals, in a very important case in New Mexico law, decided that actually just if the if the underlying uh, you know issue is like is misuse of a firearm, you can just the all the the prosecutor can essentially get by with just regular negligence, which is a real problem for Alec Baldwin. Like that creates a risk for him because I think that's a very odd. Uh, criminal statute, a very odd interpretation, I should say, of a criminal statute, because it's not the way I would read the text of their criminal statutes. And it's also not the way ordinarily that criminal statutes work. Like, you know, I always tell my, even my clients, I'm usually telling them like, hey, you don't commit crimes by accident. It's not like you slip and fall uh, and, you know, go crime in. Like, that's not how it works. Like the government's not going to convict you of committing fraud by tripping and falling. Um, so, yeah, can you unpack that a little bit? So I watched an interview with the DA, and I think she was – I think this is what you're talking about. She said there's two avenues to involuntary manslaughter. There's a first one that you just talked about, which I kind of understood for her to say that Alec Baldwin and these other people on the set had an affirmative duty of care to kind of take certain steps before they handled these weapons. Um, like you said, it you know, they didn't just have – they they had more than kind of um, – just reasonable care. They had a certain a due diligence sort of uh, duty, and, and she thinks they failed in that. Like, and every person didn't do their job, basically. Then she says there's this other avenue to involuntary manslaughter, which is a misdemeanor, and it's the negligent handling of a weapon. Is that what you're saying? But what does so she it's mean actually, by that? It's complicated. So the <laughs> negligent handling of a weapon is a misdemeanor, true. But yeah. it actually merges under New Mexico law with a felony, and it will be a felony under this, I think, very questionable decision. Um, and it will it doesn't have a mandatory minimum, so he, you know, who knows what prison time he would get for it. But just pure negligence of you know in the handling of the weapon can lead to a felony involuntary manslaughter. So if it leads to death, then it can become. Involuntary manslaughter. Got it. Because okay. it's the unlawful use of a weapon, which is the mishandling in connection with a death. 
I uh, see. Okay. But it's very, as I said, very sketch because that's not usually why people are convicted of felonies. In the Has States. anyone it's ever a- been convicted that way? Yeah, in fact, there's a leading case on it. If you go to my Twitter feed, you could you could find it because uh, I was I was tweeting out for New Mexico lawyers to help me understand it because it was just so bizarre. Um, but after spending time, you know, looking into it, yeah, there's a New Mexico case where there was a discharge of a firearm. There was a there was a difference in facts about you know uh, between the the prosecution and the defense about how exactly this happened, but it was. You know, an, essentially an accidental discharge, you know, very similar to the situation. And the defense is like, hey, you need this want, you need this higher level of of um, negligence. You need like this wanton disregard for human life. And uh, New Mexico Court of Appeals is like, no, because this is an unlawful use of a weapon. Um, so you just need the regular negligence. The weird thing, though, Asha, is it's like a self-referential, right? Because the unlawful use, the, what makes it unlawful, it's not, I, when I looked at the statute, I thought, well, these are people who are like, you know, like hoodlums versus people who have like a, a, a you know, a, an FOID card or, you know, they're authorized to carry the weapon versus, you know, some street gang that, you know, is, has stolen guns. But no, it's, it, you know, the, what the Court of Appeals says is, well, the, the negligent mishandling is itself illegal. And so that's, that, that does it. Wow. So it, it really puts him in a very tough spot because the uh, wanton uh, charge, uh, to, you, to, to abbreviate it in a weird way, um, <laughs> uh, has a five-year mandatory minimum. So that's a massive hammer. And so Baldwin is in this situation. This is, I think, uh, unfair by the prosecutor. That would be my my read on it. That what the prosecutor is overcharging this. And what she does, she's taking advantage of is two things. One is you have one one statute that's so got such a low burden of proof that she might just win it. You never know, right? Even though it's like an iffy case, like she just may win that. The other count is a five-year mandatory minimum. So if you're Alec Baldwin, you got to be thinking like, oh my God, I, even if there's a 5% chance that I could lose on that, like that's serious business, I, you have to think about a guilty plea. I, it doesn't look like he is, but a lot of defendants would in this circumstance. I thought I heard the prosecutor say, though, that their alternative charges, meaning that he would only get sentenced for one. Well, did I misunderstand? I don't that that I don't I think that was for the misdemeanor one. I thought that was for the misdemeanor, but in any event, if let's say he just gets one or the other, let's say you're you're going to trial and you're rolling the dice, it, it makes it puts him in a situation where the downside is untenable, right? A five year mandatory minimum is is got to be insane for him to think about five years in prison, and on the flip side, the standard of proof is very or is very mushy for him there, right? Because while I don't think a lot of jurors are going to find that he had this just utter disregard for right. human life. The, he was careless. He was careless. And so, but the question is, was he careless enough to send him to prison as a felon or something? Like, I don't know. Um, so that's complicated. I will say that I think, you know, first of all, I think he's probably got the upper hand in just on the facts. And I will say that, you know, I also saw some interviews from the same DA you did. She seems awfully eager to be on television talking about this. And she almost she's commenting about her thought process and why she wanted to charge him. It just seemed um, uh, like very poor judgment to me. So 
It sounds, if I've been following your comments correctly, I think you think that everybody involved has been unwise in their comments because I think you also thought that Alec Baldwin could have, should have kept his mouth shut too. Yeah. So Alec Baldwin um, went on, on podcasts, TV shows, he did a George Stephanopoulos interview and he made all sorts of statements about this because he was concerned about, you know, his reputation. And I think some of those are going to come back to haunt them in this trial. I mean, for example, he claimed that he never pressed the trigger. And the DA made a big point about that, saying that they are going to have some expert who's going to go in and say the gun would have never fired if he didn't press the trigger. So why he put himself in that box, I don't know. Um, It's the sort of thing, I mean, do, do people under investigation do stupid things? Sure. You know, sometimes if I'm representing one of them, I'm just scratching my head. But this is a real problem for him. Um, and I, I think that she, um, you know, that was a gift that perhaps made it easier for her to make this choice. Supposedly, she alluded to communications, which I don't think we are we have publicly. But that's the other potential one here. I mean, there are certainly the other person who charged the armorer who was supposed to make sure that there was not real bullets in here. You know, she made some really foolish statements on video. I mean, to be fair to her, she was shocked and obviously very concerned, but she talked about her own liability in the minutes after the death. And was like, Oh my God, Alex going to sue me and this and that. Um, And uh, you know, who knows what other communications the DA is referring to maybe text messages or other things that could be incriminating. Yeah. And I think, I mean, beyond the legal stuff, I just, I don't understand why there were real bullets anywhere. That's a mystery. And she, uh, the DA claims that they, they've not figured that out. I mean, that's something you would think that they would. Like, it just seems like this is a movie set. There's no reason for there to be actual bullets. And I mean, I don't know what the procurement process is for weapons on a movie set, but it just feels like there's some place way downstream where this is intended for a movie set. Like, there's no reason right. for it to ever kind of travel through that chain accompanied by or loaded with actual weapons. Yeah. I mean, with the actual bullets. It's a great question. I and mean, I actually think a more interesting trial and a more interesting question would be sort of the liability that, you know, producers like, like him, I mean, he was a lesser sort of role, but uh, producers – had in terms of you know on a more on the civil side, which has already been settled, she's already gotten her the victim's estate has already gotten its money. But you know what what responsibility they had here, the, the because it's a criminal case, the DA is very narrowly focused. So the criminal case is just like did he you know fail to check? You know the the DA is claiming that he by failing to check that the bullets were were not you know were not were not real, and by you know. Um, um, you know, by, uh, you know, firing at her without, um, you know, without, uh, by pointing it at her without checking that, that that is itself, uh, negligent, you know, without all of the stuff of like, why did these get there? How did these get there? Were, were there a proper control? Did he admit that he didn't check the gun? Um, yes. I mean, uh, kind of, I mean, he said it in a self-serving way, but what he basically said is I relied on, Mm. Uh, the, what others were telling you know i was told this was fine i was told to fire it 
I mean, the other thing that I have to say, okay, now I'm not a, I'm not a Hollywood or movie person at all, but couldn't he have moved? I mean, wouldn't it be just good for everyone's sake to always aim like five inches away from the person? Like, do you really need to aim like right at them? Like go to the camera? No. Or like pick up, like I'm not aiming at Asha's head. I'm actually aiming like five inches the other way. Like, couldn't they just offer yeah. safety sake, like never quite aim directly at the person? I don't know. Just the thought. Or maybe like, I mean, I'm sure you can control like cameras, like without having to stand right behind them. But maybe for that particular right ten seconds, like just right. like get people cleared out of the way, like so that they're not downrange of of the weapon. Um, Seriously, it's I, I crazy. I mean, it just seems like such a needless death. Yeah. I will say the jury is not going to be happy that this woman died. And there you could all, you could imagine a set of jurors who want to make some sort of statement. So very difficult problem for Mr. Baldwin. Um, and um, it just, I think it's a, a useful window. I mean, if there's anything, if you're listening to this and you're intrigued by it, I mean, what I will say is it's a window into prosecutorial discretion and how things are charged. And you could imagine this charge differently. Like you could imagine just the lesser, like you could imagine just one charge or the other or neither. Um, and, or some other resolution. I mean, they could have given Mr. Baldwin the opportunity to plead to that misdemeanor in exchange for doing some things to help the community or to help the victim or something along those lines, but they didn't go that route. So speaking of prosecutorial discretion, um, (laughs) I'm uh, giving a talk at McGill University on Thursday, a lecture about how to reconcile the executive accountability with prosecutorial independence. Wow. Yeah, it's it's actually been really fun to put together, but I'm combining that with a college visit for my son. So he's going to come up with me. Is he going to Canada for college? Well- I'm actually encouraging him to look outside of the United States wow. for college. So we're looking at we're going to look at McGill. Um, I'm encouraging him to look at St Andrews in Scotland mm. and Trinity College in Ireland. Wow. Um, maybe some uh, schools in Great Britain, but those are t- typically three year programs, and mm-hmm. I don't know. I like the kind. I like four years. Um, I don't know, at that stage of your life, I think four years is good. But um, for two reasons. Number one, it turns out, actually, that while these international schools are not exactly cheap, they are cheaper than the schools here. <laughs> There's um, an ulterior motive. <laughs> um, and then the other is, I don't know, like, I don't know where we're headed, you know, and... There's a part of me that's like maybe I can, maybe I can start the chain migration, you know, <laughs> like Ireland. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like get in there, you know. He can find, you know, a, a nice Irish partner and then sponsor me, and you know, when things get too bad, and just kind of flee. Wow, that's amazing. I've had friends like encourage their kids to like look at state schools. They're like, have you? If you know, have you seen the, you know, whatever, you know, Arizona State University scholarship program or whatever? But I, this is the first where I've I've never met anybody who's like, you know what, I really want my kid to go overseas because they're cheaper. 
And because maybe they can get because me out we might of this end place. up in a civil war. So, um, <laughs> well, and just to be clear, on the other end of the spectrum, he's also looking at service academies. Whoa! In which case, we're super tied. other end. Of I know the it's totally other end. Um, and so, I, and you know, as a mom, like I, I would love for him to go. Um, you know, my my boyfriend went to the Naval Academy. Um, uh, my son's dad went to the Air Force Academy. So, I, you know, and my, mm-hmm. my dad was in the military. I'm very pro-military. But, you know, again, looking ahead, um, looks kind of bleak, you know? Like, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Are we going to have a war with China? Like, are we... Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not... I, I've been encouraging him to think about Space Force. Oh, Okay. Cause that's because they don't. They, what do they just do? Like they just like. I'm sure it's all computer. I think so. <laughs> wow. So, um, so th- that's that's where we are on the on the whole college thing, and then you know wow. everything in between. It's a, it's kind of when you get to that point, you have a stepdaughter, right? Yeah, I I don't think she's going to be looking at the Space Force. (laughs) That's great. I think it'll be much more mundane. Uh, I I did not consider like, hey, how about you go as far away from here as possible, um, you know, and go to Ireland or something. I didn't consider that. I actually was looking at University of New Zealand. (laughs) Um, but then I thought that might be even too far for me because I obviously want to be able to see him, but I think that'd be cool actually, you know? Sure. I have a client who lives in New Zealand. It's, it's fun, but it's, uh, that's a fun place. It's like very idyllic, right? It's like Lord of the Rings it's was filmed beautiful. there. Um, mm-hmm. But man, that's pretty far away. It's, it's I don't know. Far. He's like, you want to send your son <laughs> off. It's like, you don't like him or something? I love him. I know. Uh, I, I, but I also, you know, I will say like, this gives me a reason um, oh, to, to, go. to go to Europe or, you know, um, I mean, Canada is Canada, but um you know, but but Australia, I mean, New Zealand and Australia are kind of far. So I don't know that I can fully contemplate schools there right now. Wow. So but he's more into service academies because that's his idea. It wasn't your idea. His idea was service academies. My idea wow. is. Don't you have to get like your member of Congress to sponsor you? Yeah, it's a very um, it, it's a very complicated process. Uh, you, you do have to get a member of Congress to nominate you. Okay. And so um, I I haven't fully, you know, I I haven't investigated exactly how that whole process works. We're just right now trying to look at schools, prepare for the test, you know, take AP tests, things like that. So he's still a junior. Okay. He's got time. Yeah. Wow. I never considered either of those options. I only looked at U.S. schools. But then again, I, whatever. I didn't have a mom who was... uh, you know, flying around and giving speeches at other universities and doing all that fancy stuff. So <laughs> good for you. Um, well, good. Um, that'll be fun. Maybe next time we can talk about um, something else. We got Valentine's Day coming up, right? Yeah, you, you, I know. You you weren't ready to talk about that today. I was not. Uh, let's. Uh, here's a peek behind the curtain. Uh, Asha's like, oh, I've been making all my Valentine's Day plans. And I'm like, Girl, it's three weeks before Valentine's <laughs> Day. I have not thought about that. I wow, I just got off the red eye today. I have not been thinking about Valentine's Day, so we'll figure that out next week.
M S W Media. It's no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth.